Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. about anti-Semitism brings up a lot of feelings and um, we're also going to be talking about Israel and anti-Zionism because you can't, you know, these are in relationship with one another at this point um, and that also brings up a lot of feelings. So I just want to acknowledge that and just so that you understand sort of why I'm talking about this, why now. I've, I'm a faculty member at Hampshire, I'm now moving institutions, but um, I was a faculty member obviously for many years and then I became a dean. Um, at this college. And Hampshire College, it's like, you know, as the stereotype of the four-year private liberal arts college in New England. That is to say, what's the stereotype? Lefty, activist, right? Like, it's, it totally is that kind of institution. But a lot of Jewish students go there, um, very active Jewish student life, very affiliated with kind of lefty, progressive um, sort of causes and sensibilities. Um, and those were my students, you know, like I taught Jewish American, Jewish literature, Jewish American literature, American literature, and like these were the students I worked with on a regular basis, a lot of Jewish students. Um, and I started thinking a lot about their experiences on campus and also how complicated their Jewishness was. And um, so I'll talk a little bit, because they were my audience really. And so, and then I became a dean. I became the dean of academic support and advising. And I did that for many years at Hampshire, which is what led me to my new position um, as the chief academic officer and VP of academic and student affairs at a community college that I'm moving to. Um, so I thought a lot about just how students experience life on campus, how they move through their college education, what sets them up for success, um, and you know how do they develop a sense of belonging in college? Right? These were the questions beyond Jewish students, or you know, the questions that really preoccupied me for many years while I was the dean, um, and thinking a lot about students' identities and how that really impacts how they experience campus life and how they move through campus. So that's, that's sort of like how, you know, why I was thinking a lot about these issues. Um, and then of course, you know, after 2016, we saw not only a resurgence of um, anti-Semitic discourse in the country at large, but weirdly, a resurgence, a kind of uptick in anti-Semitism on college campuses, or at least an uptick in reporting. Um, and so, and we can talk a little bit more about that. Just to contextualize, there's been an uptick in general in students reporting racist incidents on campus, reporting incidents of uh, sexual violence on campus. So all these things are going up, right? Like all the kind of these incidents of reporting are going up. So, you know, um, and, and we had an incident at my campus, uh, which was uh, graffiti, right? When most, most anti-Semitic incidents on campuses and in general in the country are kind of graffiti and, um, and defacements, right? Like swastikas on synagogue walls and things like that. That's what we found um, uh, on, on my campus. But of course, it's obviously escalating, feels like it's escalating. Um, and I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that Jews in general, the world over, don't feel safe, and Jews in the United States are not feeling so safe, and Jewish students don't feel safe. 
Um, I want to add, though, that many students don't feel safe right, on campus. So it's, that's kind of the wider, uh, the wider um, context. So, um, so this graffiti happened on campus, and Jewish students um, and others, many students, started really um, uh, asking for more education on campus around anti-Semitism. You know, it's a very activist campus. We have one day every semester that we call um, Day of Engagement, where the entire campus comes together and talks about racism and talks about anti-racism and how to, you know, how to fight racism. And there had never really been a discussion about anti-Semitism in those spaces. And so a bunch of students and staff and faculty um, were really asking for that. And so I was on a panel where we talked about anti-Semitism. So the reason I want to set, the reason why I want to give you this context is because my audience were these students, right? Especially Jewish students who were really struggling with how to um, align their, um, their politics, their identities, the, 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 their desire to be allies and affiliated with other activist groups on campus, but also this feeling that they were encountering anti-Semitism all over the place, and also this feeling that it's sort of like gaslighting, like, is that per did that person just say something anti-Semitic or didn't, like, was that anti-Semitic? Why am I feeling uncomfortable? So really needing a language to talk about anti-Semitism. And, and what I, um, and after many years, I've spent many years listening to Jewish students kind of talk to me about their experiences, and I'm really convinced that anti-Semitism on campus is not just about Israel. It really, really isn't. I think that they get conflated, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. Well, I'm going to talk a lot about that today. But students experience anti-Semitic discourse around things like class, around things like, meaning socioeconomic class, um, around things like religious observance. So for instance, on a kind of radical, on a, on a campus where there are many, many kind of progressive, even radical politics, people are very secular. So if you're an observant Jew, you also, you get some blowback about that too. And so there are ways in which anti-Semitism is intersecting not just with Israel politics or anti-Israel politics, but also with issues of class, race, um, and religious observance. And that's kind of, you know, and I was, I've been years taking this in from my students, and I wanted to kind of put it back out to the community and, see, and say, like, this is how you all are experiencing this on campus. Let's name it, and let's talk about it, and let's develop a language for talking about it. So that's the context. Now, okay, um, so one goal, okay, um, I, I know obviously, so I, th that's the other thing I was gonna say, like my audience were students, this is obviously a different audience, right? You're not college students. Um, but um, I know that many parents and, and grandparents are really concerned about the college decision process. I mean, I just sent a kid, you know, my oldest just graduated high school and is doing a gap year in Israel and then she's gonna go to college. Um, and parents are concerned about how do you decide on what college your kid in addition to the many other considerations, right? Like how much it costs, and is this the program that my kid wants? Um, you also want your kid to be somewhere where they feel safe and supported, right? So, so this is something that parents are really thinking about. So, um, so one goal of this talk, um, it's hard to talk about anti-Semitism if we haven't agreed on how to define it or what it looks like. Um, it's a little bit like the Supreme Court definition of obscenity. It's like you know it when you see it. it we need a definition, right? So we need, we need some def definitions of anti-Semitism. So one of the challenges that you, Jewish young people have when they get to college is that anti-Semitism is really confusing. It comes from the right. It comes from the left. It doesn't operate the way anti-black racism or anti-brown racism does. It, 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 it is different. And that is why it's very confusing. So one goal 
here is to offer some definitions so we can recognize it when we see it, especially when it's intertwined with the kind of activist discourse that a lot of students are exposed to when they go to college, um, and, and which at least my students really identify with, right? And so how then do they, um, how, do, how do they navigate that? The second goal of this talk is that we need to be clear on the complex relationship of anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. So there's legitimate criticism, and when does it cross the line and become anti-Semitic? And students are really struggling with that. Frankly, grown-ups are too, but, okay, but that's a real struggle. Can we develop a language to talk about this that encourages a freedom of debate, especially on campuses, which were supposed to be you know, kind of bastions, oases of freedom of debate, right? Um, but also names anti-Semitism, especially on the left, so the left can hear it. And this is something that I struggle with a lot. Um, how do you name it on the left so that the left can actually hear it and, and be reflective about it, self-reflective? Okay. And then, of course, the third goal, which I already talked about, anti-Semitism on campuses is obviously intersecting with debates about Israel, but it's not all that it's about at all. Um, and Jewish students are experiencing anti-Semitism in a number of ways, and a lot of it I don't think they report because they don't have a language to really talk about it. So, um, and, I, and here I'm thinking a lot about internalized anti-Semitism, um, and students kind of own internalized shame about their Jewishness and how that gets activated on campus, um, and also the language of microaggressions. This is a language that, um, uh, that, that people of color often use to describe their experiences of racism, that it's rare that you uh, encounter someone who's like an, a blatant out-and-out -out racist who will like call you racist names. That's very rare. But instead, you experience what we call microaggressions, which are comments, and body language and attitudes and like, you know, constantly getting interrupted at meetings or, you know what I mean, like things like that. So the language of microaggressions to really try to get at how students experience anti-Semitism. And then finally, and hopefully we'll have a chance to have a conversation, what, are, what can we do about it, right? What are some solutions? What are some, maybe it's too optimistic to say solution because we can't eradicate anti-Semitism, but what do we do, right? What are, what are the resources available to students um, and families and colleges? Um, okay, so, um, uh, and then I should also say, in terms of my own Israel politics, I, I love Israel. I go every year. I spend the summer there. Um, I am a, a Zionist, but I would call myself a critical Zionist. Um, I'm always learning something new when I go. I've lived there, you know, I've lived there for several, you know, on and off for years, whatever. I, you know, I spent sabbaticals, and so I have an ongoing, long relationship with Israel where it's a place that I'm totally enchanted by and very challenged by, and every time I go, I think I understand, and then I don't understand, and I go, and I change my mind, you know? So I just wanna put that out there is like, you know, I'm not an ideologue about Israel, um, and I'm really, uh, and it's a place that is so important for me personally, but also in my work, but it's also a place, like, I think we need to just talk about, like, what can you criticize, and where do you cross a line, right? And I just want that, in Israel, if you spend time there, everything is on the table. Right? Like, everything is on the table. And so I think that American Jews, and I think a lot of this, again, is kind of this internalized anti-Semitism, American Jews have to be more comfortable arguing about Israel, right? And not feeling like they have to circle the wagons. So um, Israel's not immune from criticism. So, um, so that's, that's also that kind of complicated landscape that we have to navigate. Um, okay, so. Um, anti-Semitism is often called the longest hatred, the oldest hatred. Um, and, uh, and it has changed historically over time. And so I thought that we would start just by a quick kind of historical overview 
Um, and then this is, this is the kind of the first definition that we're going to talk about of anti-Semitism. So one scholar um, divides anti-Semitism into periods. So there's the pre-Christian anti-Semitism, which this scholar says was ethnically based. So we see it in ancient Greek, ancient Rome. There was anti-Semitism, right, in those places that was pre-Christian, and it was often, you know, thinking about Jews as a separate people. So that's what we mean by ethnic, because it's about based on kind of peoplehood. Um, then you see kind of the religious anti-Semitism of the early Christian world and the Middle Ages, that's the second period. The political, social, and economic anti-Semitism of the Enlightenment period, uh, that's the third period. And then that lays the groundwork for the racial anti-Semitism of, of the 19th and 20th century. And then finally, scholars talk about what they call the new anti-Semitism of the 21st century, which is very much tied to Israel and maybe Muslim anti-Semitism. And you know, the, they call it kind of the new. And there's, by the way, debate about all of this. Um, all of these varieties and flavors of anti-Semitism share some tropes, or they kind of take old tropes and introduce new versions of them. So I'm not going to talk in great detail about these periods. I'm going to concentrate actually on the Enlightenment period. Um, as what I think is really important context for sort of the university and modern Jewish identity and how Jews navigate the university. So it's kind of like from the 1700s on is kind of the period that I'm most interested in. But it's important for us to remember some hallmarks of pre-modern anti-Semitism that keep coming back, right? So for instance, um, the blood libel, right? Very old anti-Semitic charge. Um, the, one of the oldest anti-Semitic charges is uh, separatism, that Jews keep themselves separate and they're tribal. Here you see a connection with what I'm going to be talking about tonight. Um, so charges of separatism and tribalism and charges of conspiracy and secret power. And those are all things that precede even the Enlightenment period, right? You see those in, even in kind of the most ancient iterations, um, antique iterations of anti-Semitism. We know, for instance, you know, some stereotypes of Jews, we know where they come from, right? So stereotypes of Jews that still have a lot of power, um, still have legs, as we say. Uh, stereotypes of Jews as greedy and materialistic that we know, most of us anyway, that this originated in the Middle Ages when Jews were highly restricted in terms of their profession. Like they couldn't own land, they couldn't join craft guilds, things like that. And so they, what was a profession that was open to them? I mean, not solely, but banking, right? Because Christians couldn't lend money at interest, but Jews could. Um, and, so, uh, and so that's where that stereotype kind of comes from. So we can also trace the beginnings of a race-based anti-Semitism all the way back to the Inquisition. Um, once the Inquisition started to um, implement what they called blood purity laws. So it, um, at the beginning of the Inquisition, if Jews had to convert um, to Catholicism, um, but then at a certain point, the church started imposing what they called limpieza de sangre. You, have to, you had to demonstrate your blood purity, meaning you don't have any traces of Jewish blood in you. And there's a lot of scholarship that really says, like, this is the beginning of a kind of race-based anti-Semitism, and that for sure is like pre-19th century. So um, one scholar describes it this way, which I think is really interesting. Each anti-Semitism creates something enduring, which remains in the cultural reservoir, ready to be drawn upon and reinvigorated, right? So like all these tropes kind of like get laid to rest and then br get brought back, you know? So all these varieties and flavors, um, uh, okay, which we'll talk about. Um, one scholar, I have a colleague who teaches a course on anti-Semitism, he was on the panel with me, and he named his course, Hating the Jews More Than Necessary, um, A History of Anti-Semitism. So, the, but the phrase, hating the Jews more than necessary, he didn't make that up, right? It's actually a scholar, it was actually not a scholar, it was, a, I think, a, a, some aristocrat. 
um, in the 19th century defined anti-Semitism anti as hating the Jews more than necessary, which then of course like brings up all these really interesting questions. Like, is there a level of hatred that is justified, right? Like, what would be an appropriate not too much level yeah. of like, hating Jews? So, right? So it's just a really interesting phrase. The term anti-Semitism itself was coined in the late 19th century. Um, historically, it was just called Jew hatred. But anti-Semitism was a term coined by a German, an anti-Semitic German, who was working with the idea that there was a white race and then there was a Semitic race that Jews belonged to. And so now, when we use the term anti-Semitism, like recognizing that that term itself was born out of like this you know, anti-Jewish um, kind of uh, uh, ideological system, scholars often write now anti-Semitism all lowercase as a way of signaling that we're not subscribing to the kind of racial classification system that that term came out of. Okay. Um, some common features of all of these anti-Semitisms, um, all these diverse anti-Semitisms. And this is also what's confusing because every, every ideological system has a, a variant of anti-Semitism, right? So fascism, um, communism, um, Islamicism, uh, you know, like all of these, like capitalism. So everyone has like all of these really different political and ideological orientations have an anti-Semitic, right, like can, can express anti-Semitism. So like it comes from all over the place. It's, it's complicated. Um, but a common feature of diverse anti-Semitisms is that they construct the Jews as centrally important to everything that is wrong with the world. So watch out for that as a kind of hallmark. That is to say, as portrayed by anti-Semites, Jews are deemed to have a universal importance for mankind. They're responsible for killing Christ. So in the Christian narrative, they're responsible for killing Christ. Hence, they need to be overcome in order to complete the universal Christian mission of redeeming humanity. Jews are responsible for communism, right? That's the anti-communist anti narrative, that like Jews are responsible for communism. Jews are responsible for capitalism, okay? Um, right? So, those are, so that, that is all there. Um, so, um, so it's attributing this outsized power to Jews. Now, when people attribute that same outsized power to Israel, then that's a sign that rational critique is crossing the boundary into something else, right? So think about that as that's, and that can be a real, you know, when you're really trying to figure out, okay, is that legitimate, is that not legitimate? Like, and it's complicated because um, sometimes a, the same criticism of Israel can be legitimate, but the way it's being articulated, the context, it's like wrapped up in some really, really problematic stuff. And I think that's why, you know, discourse is complicated and multi-layered, and so, so that's why it's not always so clear, right? Like when, when you know, how to recognize it happening. Um, okay, so what definition do we use? So there are some official ones out here, and often people use the State Department one. I wanna say this is a controversial definition, actually. So, um, but we'll, we'll start with that. So I know it's, it's a lot of words, so I'm gonna, um, I will read it. So anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as a hatred toward Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and their property, toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. Um, and that's kind of a working, the State Department adopted this definition from some other organizations. Um, contemporary examples, calling for, aiding, justifying the killing or harming of Jews, often in the name of a radical ideology, making mendacious, dehumanizing, demonizing, stereotypical allegations about Jews, as such, or the power of Jews as a collective, especially, but not exclusively, 
um, the myth about a world Jewish conspiracy of Jews controlling the media, economy, government, or other societal institutions. Accusing Jews as a people of being responsible for real or imagined wrongdoing committed by a single Jewish person or group, the state of Israel, or even for acts committed by non-Jews. Accusing the Jews as a people or Israel as a state of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust and accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel or to the alleged priorities of Jews worldwide than to the interest of their own nations. Okay, so this is the State Department definition, yeah. Was there one more new bullet point that was recently, or the last one is a new one that was recently added? Maybe, I don't know. Okay. This is the newest version, it could okay. be. But they have this whole addendum, what is anti-Semitism relative to Israel? That might be what you're thinking about because they, you know. So um, examples of the ways in which anti-Semitism manifests with regard to the state of Israel, taking into account the overall context could include demonize Israel, using the symbols and images associated with classic anti-Semitism to characterize Israel or Israelis, drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis, blaming Israel for all interreligious or political tensions, the double standard for Israel, applying <coughs> double standards by requiring of it a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation, multilateral organizations focusing on Israel only for peace or human rights investigations, and denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination and denying Israel the right to exist. This is accessible online? Oh yeah, yeah. Just look for State Department definitions. I will say, however, that there are, there are activists and scholars who don't like this because they say that it has the effect of shutting down a lot of conversation about Israel. So um, I don't have, I mean, I'm not gonna take a position there, but I just think it's really interesting that like, no, it's really hard to agree. So let me see. Okay. Well, did you see the caveat at the bottom, though, the however? Oh, yes. Sorry. However, criticism of Israel similar to that leveled against any other country cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic. So, you know, so again, this is not a universally accepted definition. And what's interesting is that the State Department adopted this definition in, because it's the State Department. They're monitoring anti-Semitism overseas. So they don't necessarily apply it domestically, right, internally in the United States. Um, so there's like a lot, there's just a lot of conversation about this, right? It's just not, it's not a settled issue. Okay. It, mm -hmm. what, yeah. gives, what gives the State Department the right to be the definite finder of anti-Semitism? Well, yeah, and also what are they, right. They have a, a reputation of being anti-Semitic. Right, uh, right, and also like the issue is like there's no, there's no, you know, who's enforcing this, right? Like who's, what's, what are the consequences? It probably shouldn't be surprising to us given kind of the history of internal Jewish arguments, that there isn't necessarily agreement, even among Jews, about what anti-Semitism looks like or what its boundaries are. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the Enlightenment and about sort of how Jewishness changes from the Enlightenment on, because to me that becomes a really important context for thinking about contemporary Jewish identity and sort of um, uh, the difficulties, I think, that both Jews and non-Jews have in trying to figure out what's anti-Jewish and what's not. So um, this is probably stating the obvious, right? But I'm gonna say it anyway. Um, from the Enlightenment on, the Jewish relationship to modernity and the development of modern Jewish identities has been complex and diverse and multivalent. That is to say, there are many, many ways of being Jewish. And there's a history of that. So, um, you know, what, what, why, why do I care about the Enlightenment? Because the Enlightenment is the moment in which the concept of civil rights is invented and Jews are given the option or the opportunity of entering civil society as citizens, right? So up until the Enlightenment, nobody was a citizen, right? You were subjects. But once you have the emergence of sort of republics, you become a citizen. 
So Jews are offered this opportunity. Cynthia Ozick, who's a writer I love, calls it the Napoleonic bargain. Napoleon goes to the Jews of France and says, you can become citizens, right? And there's a very famous quote by a French, assemb a French assemblyman um, you know, in, the in the debates about in this new French Republic, who's gonna be a citizen? Can women be citizens, right? Can people of color be citizens? Can Jews be citizens? So this, this assemblyman says, give the Jews every right as individuals, don't give them any rights at all as a nation. So what does that mean? It means that you can enter civil society, but what's the price? Because Jews in Europe, they lived as, they were very vulnerable, right? Um, but they lived relatively autonomous lives. That is to say communities. They were autonomous communities. They spoke their own language. They had their own court system. They had their own schools. Um, they, um, they spoke their, you know, they wore their clothes, right? They didn't serve in the army. They were autonomous communities. So you can become a citizen and enter civil society, but what's the price? You have to speak our language. Stop speaking Yiddish, speak French, right? You have to stop wearing your funny clothes, okay? Think about all the debates in France now about the hijab. Stop wearing your funny clothes. You're gonna look just like every other Frenchman. Um, you have to serve in our army, so, because you're a citizen now, right? So serve in the army. What does that mean? You can't keep kosher anymore. You can't keep the Sabbath. You have to use our courts, right? No more your own courts. Use our courts, and uh, you have to send your kids to our schools. No more your own schools. You see what I'm saying? So that's the price, that's like, you enter civil society at a price. That is the Napoleonic bargain. You can become a citizen, but these are all the things that you give up. So. That has deep and enduring effects, right? Um, I, I call Jews the first internalized, colonized population of Europe. Europe kind of went out and colonized the rest of the world, but Jews were an internally colonized population. So what's the pressure? So many Jews did this, right? They gave up their languages, their clothes, their schools, their courts, their antiquated ritual observances. They assimilated, okay? So that's one possible response to the, Napole the Napoleonic bargain. Many converted, by the way, but many assimilated. But if you want to kind of resist, what are the, what are the varieties of like modern uh, political or, or ethnic or religious expression that are available to you as a Jew? So many Jews turn to ethnic nationalism. Zionism is just one expression of that, right? Like Jews also became socialist, but like, like uh, we call it um, autonomism, right? It's like socialism, but it's Jewish socialism. Um, so there were um, Yiddishism, that was another variety of nationalism. Um, uh, others, other Jews attempted to remake Jewishness. Um, they, you know, instead of abandoning Jewishness, you could remake Jewishness, you could change it, you could make it modern, you could make it different. Um, one effect also of the Enlightenment was, you know, if you're gonna be, as the famous, the famous expression goes, a man in the street and a Jew at home, right? Jewishness no, can no longer be a public identity. It has to be a private identity. So what that means is that if you remake Jewishness into just a religion, it's only a religion. It's just the church you go to. And in every other way, you're just like your non-Jewish neighbors, right? So Jewishness becomes just a religion. So um, rather than the kind of totalizing cultural identity that it had been. Um, others, um, you know, other Jews, uh, embraced secular culture, Jewish and otherwise. Other Jews devoted themselves to radical revolutionary movements. You see, there's like a variety of responses that Jews developed to the challenges of modernity. Um, and radical revolutionary mo movements were very hostile to ethnic and religious and national particularism, right? So if you're gonna become a communist, communism doesn't believe in nation, doesn't believe in religion, doesn't believe in ethnicity. So like you have to kind of like submerge all that if you're gonna devote yourself to the revolutionary cause. Um, okay, 
So that's kind of like, that's what I mean by internal colonization. Jews are asked up to give up, Jews are asked to give up their Jewishness in all sorts of ways or transform it, right? In order to become model citizens, Jews had to change. Their difference had to be managed. And that's what I call internalized, that's, that produces a lot of internalized anti-Semitism and a lot of shame, right? Because that's centuries of colonization right there. Meanwhile, outside of Europe, Jews in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, because of course Jews didn't just live in Europe, right? They lived all over the world, and they experienced European colonialism as indigenous subjects. So the result is that there's no monolithic Jewish identity, there's no monolithic Jewish experience, there's no monolithic uh, Jewish perspective on Israel, in Israel, on America, <laughs> on Jewishness, right? Um, okay. It may be stating the obvious, but I feel like it's worth saying because I think that like one of the I think one of the hallmarks of anti-Semitism is this idea that all Jews kind of think the same, are the same, right? And we have to Jews have to really resist that and embrace Jewish diversity in every way. Um, okay, the majority of American Jews skew left. We know that, right? About 75% of American Jews tend to they consider themselves liberal, affiliate with the Democratic movement. However, as we all know there is a ton of disagreement within that spectrum, okay? Um, so again, it's just kind of like, I just wanna affirm the kind of diversity of Jewish perspectives. Um, there's a narrative frequently repeated, um, Rabbi Shmuley and I talked about this, that Jews in America became white, right? Like maybe at the beginning when they were sort of like the great unwashed immigrants who spoke Yiddish and weren't educated and you know, were kind of like the underclass or whatever and like, yes, it's true, like socially, they were kind of not quite white, not white enough, off-white. As soon as you, and class whitens you, as soon as you enter the middle class, right, you became, and so the narrative in the States is that Jews became white, especially after World War II when anti-Semitism became kind of um, unfashionable. Um, but that actually does not reflect, the problems, I have a lot of problems with that narrative, but it actually doesn't reflect a global reality, which is that Jews are a multiracial people, right, a multi-ethnic and multiracial people. We have a friend who has an organization called Jews of All Hues, Right, so Jew, there are people of color who are Jewish, and so I, I, I'm saying this to you, and you're all you're all, you're all looking at me like, duh, you know, <laughs> of course. But students have internalized this narrative so much because Jewish students go to college, and immediately they're told you're white, you're privileged, da da da, and so like th that's the that's the that's the narrative that they internalize, and so it's really worth saying to students like that's not the global reality, right? Okay. Meanwhile. I say, I say Jews are a multiracial, multi-ethnic people. There are many Jews who I know who don't believe in Jewish peoplehood at all, right? Even this idea of peoplehood is really problematic for a lot of Jews. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the learning. So, okay. So there's a lot, of, um, a lot of disagreement out there about what it means to be Jewish, who is a Jew. Meanwhile, I would say, um, you know, just judging from the population at large and sort of the, the students who are going to college, many, many, many Jewish students have a conflicted relationship with Jewishness. That is to say, maybe they have one parent who's Jewish and one parent who's not, right? They had a horrible experience in Hebrew school, right? <laughs> like, right? Not my students. <laughs> Not your students, but many students. So, you know, I call it like PTSD from Jewish institutional life. <laughs> but, so many, but many young American Jews have a really conflicted relationship with the idea of Jewishness and maybe that's because of the limitations and failures of organized American Jewish institutions and communities, okay, fine. But a lot of it, a lot of it is also 
that centuries of colonization can produce a lot of internalized shame. And I just like, it's really important for me to say that to students and for them to hold that for a while because I'm like, your problem with Jewishness may not be because of your crappy Hebrew school experience or your, you know, the fact that you, your parents made you go every Sunday or whatever. It may be because you have been taught, because for centuries Jews have been made to feel ashamed of being too Jewish, looking too Jewish, right? And especially in America where Jews have been embraced like never before. There are still all these stereotypes out there that you internalize. And so, you know, if we're gonna be prepared to talk about um, implicit bias and internalized racism, we have to think about that in terms of Jewishness too. And like students need to be told that that's okay, right? So anyway, okay. So, all right. Um, and then of course the idea of Jewish hybrid identity, which is really important that to recognize that many, especially young people, I mean, demographically, generationally, America is changing and Jews are changing and more and more Jews identify as more than just Jewish, right? Jewish and. Um, and whether that's they're people of color, which we can talk about, whether that's they're from interfaith families, whether that's, you know, I know many like Jews who are also Buddhists, right? Like, so, so that, that sense of being Jewish is also getting more and more complicated. So I wanna talk about anti-Semitism on the left. Um, because again, this is the kind of anti-Semitism that students are gonna encounter most of all, I think, on college campuses. I think we're, no, we know what anti-Semitism from the right looks like mostly. I think I'll give you some examples of that, but I think, yeah, we mostly know what that looks like. Um, but anti-Semitism on the left is hard, harder, especially for students who identify, want to identify in so many ways with the movements that are producing a lot of this, right, language. Um, okay, so why, why is there anti-Semitism on the left? So it's all because of these radical revolutionary movements whose orthodoxy demanded that Jews cease to be Jews. Right? Um, they also demanded that women cease to be women and that, and that blacks cease to be black, right? Like that is kind of the demand of something like communism is that you are submerging your own particularistic identity for the larger liberatory struggle, right? Like that is the point of a revolutionary movement. Um, so I'm not saying that Marxism is like fundamentally anti-Semitic, but it can be, you know, and these are movements where anti-Jewishness can and has taken root because the idea is you submerge your particularistic identity um, to prioritize the larger liberatory, the larger revolutionary struggle. Um, so, so that's kind of like one reason why the left becomes a place where anti-Semitism can, can uh, I don't know what the word, pro proliferate. But in the US, it becomes complicated with um, race and class. And so um, I, off, I turn to James Baldwin. How many of you know who James Baldwin is? Okay, great, fabulous. So, so James Baldwin, and there's a history of him. He taught at Hampshire for a while. So we have a scholarship program named after him. So James Baldwin, like on my campus anyway, was kind of this patron saint. So once you kind of like turn to James Baldwin, you say, James Baldwin says, then everyone's like, oh, oh well, if James Baldwin says it, okay. But James Baldwin, I mean, I, I, you know, he wrote a really um, famous essay in 1967. It was a response to another essay. Oops. Um, but it's worth, I know that the writing is really tiny. I'm sorry. Um, I thought it would be bigger. But I'll, I'll read it to you, um, and, I'll, and I'll kind of sum up the essay. So he wrote, the essay is called Negroes are Anti-Semitic Because They're Anti-White. And it was a moment, 1967, of course, is the moment where um, kind of civil rights, um, the black civil rights movement is sort of moving, transforming into a much more kind of separatist, militant kind of black power um, uh, movement um, in which 
white people in general weren't really fully welcome. And Jews, many Jews, who had kind of committed themselves to the civil rights struggle were now feeling like they were not welcome in this movement. And there's a lot of kind of conversation among public intellectuals, Jewish and black public intellectuals in the late 60s about like this kind of relationship, you know, between blacks and Jews, like what's happened, you know? Um, and, um, and so there was an essay that I think Norman Put Horitz wrote where he talks about anti-Semitism um, in the black community. And so James Baldwin wrote this response. And it's really a difficult essay. It's a painful essay to read today um, because it feels really prescient and it feels really relevant. And like everything that he's saying is sort of still happening. So I think that's why it's, it's hard to read. But in the essay, he basically starts out by discussing, you know, growing up in, in, his, um, in his neighborhood, in his you know, impoverished neighborhood. And he talks about what was the face of power in this neighborhood that he grew up in. It was a black neighborhood. Um, what was the face of power? The Jewish grocers, the Jewish landlords, the pawnbrokers, the teachers, the social workers, a lot of whom were Jewish. And because they were the face of power, they were the face of power. And he talks about the rage and the hatred that he and his friends felt towards these figures of control and exploitation. But then, as the essay continues, he proceeds to deconstruct his own assumptions because he continues building a list of all of the people who have oppressed and exploited black people in America. Um, and this is where this quote starts. He says, um, the army may or may not have been controlled by Jews. I don't know and I don't care. I know that when I worked for the army, I hated all my bosses because of the way they treated me. I don't know if the post office is Jewish, but I would certainly dread working for it again. I don't know if Wanamaker's, that was a department store. Wanamaker's was Jewish, but I didn't like running their elevator, and I didn't like any of their customers. I don't know if Nabisco <laughs> is Jewish, but I didn't like clearing their basement. I don't know if Rikers is Jewish, but I didn't like scrubbing their floors. I don't know if the big white bruiser who, who thought it was fun to call me Shine was Jewish, but I know I tried to kill him, and he stopped calling me Shine. I don't know if the last taxi driver who refused to stop for me was Jewish, but I know I'd hoped he'd break his neck before he got home. And he, so what he's doing is he's saying, like, when we say that, that the Jews control Right, like all the teachers were Jewish, the social workers, were, the landlords, the pawnbrokers, they're all Jewish and that's the face of power. But then he starts to say, okay, but who are the people who are really in power in America? Are they all Jews? I don't think so. And then he goes on and he says, I don't think, it's up there, I don't think that General Electric or General Motors or RCA or Con Edison or Mobile Oil or Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola or Firestone or the Board of Ed or the textbook industry or Hollywood or Broadway or television or Wall Street, Sacramento, Dallas, Atlanta, Albany or Washington are controlled by Jews. I think they're controlled by Americans. And the American Negro situation is the direct result of this control. And anti-Semitism among Negroes, inevitable as it may be and understandable, alas, as it is, does not operate to menace this control, but only to confirm it. It is not the Jew who controls the American drama, it is the Christian. The crisis, he says at the end, taking place in the world and in the minds and hearts of black men everywhere is not produced by the Star of David, but by the old rugged Roman cross on which Christendom's most celebrated Jew was murdered, right, Jesus, and not by Jews. That is to say, the Romans murdered him. Rome murdered Jesus, right? Who's the real enemy? Not the Jews, Rome, the people who are really in power, right? And Jesus, of course, was the people's hero. And so this narrative that Jews killed the people's hero serves to distract from the people who really killed him, which is the empire, right? That the, so this is how, and so what he says is like, this is actually a really brilliant analysis 
of anti-Semitism and the way anti-Semitism works. And so, and here's another activist who I think, who I really, oops, I keep going the wrong direction. Okay. So Aurora Levins Morales is a Puerto Rican Jewish activist. And I really love her because I think she kind of demonstrates to sort of all those folks who are like Jews are white and people of color are people of color and like they're not, you know, there's this chasm. She's a Puerto Rican Jewish activist who's like, let's talk about the reality of identity in this country. And she wrote a piece also about anti-Semitism. And this is why I think it's, it's, a, it's a great um, analysis. She says, the whole point of anti-Semitism has been to create a vulnerable buffer group that can be bribed with some privileges into managing the exploitation of others. And then, when social pressure builds, be blamed and scapegoated, distracting those at the bottom from the crimes of those at the top. Okay? So social that's why social justice movements are so vulnerable <coughs> to anti-Semitism, because that's exactly how anti-Semitism is designed to work, right? Peasants, this is her, peasants who go on pogroms against their Jewish neighbors will never make it to the nobleman's palace, right, to burn him out and seize the fields. This is the role of Jews in Europe, this has been the role of Jews in the United States, and this is the role of Jews in the Middle East. That's, that's not me, that's her, that's what she says. Um, so I just wanna like, so I think that's a really important, that's why anti-Semitism doesn't look the way anti-black racism does because, you know, as a, um, you know, this idea that like, uh, anti-black racism operates like those people, you know, um, are inferior, are, right, like inferior, but, but anti-Semitism uh, uh, attributes great power to Jews, right? So it constructs the Jews as hyper-privileged, hyper-powerful, hyper-sinister, and so it actually serves to distract, right? It kind of redirects all of that, all of the sort of like energy that should be going, you know, that should be sort of directed against the people who really have the power are being, it's being redirected against Jews. So that's why anti-Semitism looks so different and that's why students have a really hard time. Okay, now, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, how am I doing on time? Okay, great. great. So, so it's really hard to have a conversation about anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism here, everywhere, across the political spectrum because some people argue passionately that they're the same thing, right? And others argue equally passionately that they are not the same thing, right? So. So what is the truth? Um, one scholar writes, anti-Zionism is one thing, anti-Semitism is another. They are separate, but to say that they are separate is not to say that they are never connected, right? They are independent variables that, be, that can be connected in different ways. Not all criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, but neither is all criticism of Israel free from anti-Semitism, right? So, so think of these as kind of like, they're their own set of discourses that then kind of like, you know, kind of connect in really complicated ways. Um, criticism of Israeli policies and hostility to Israel come from a number of starkly distinct and different political traditions. Another point of confusion. Liberal, there's a liberal critique of Israel. Democratic, post-colonial, Stalinist, socialist, nationalist, conservative, fascist, Islamist, right? These are all places, these are all very different political traditions that all criticize Israel. They also come from different parts of the world, right? And different cultural and language traditions, Europe, America, the Middle East, um, Christian, Jewish, Arabic, Muslim. These traditions are variegated and distinct, but they're also intertwined. This is another scholar who's really good, named David Hirsch, who writes a lot about this. He's a sociologist. And he writes, elements of rhetoric and common sense notions circulate amongst these living spaces, evolving and moving easily from one to another. 
So like the same comment can start out sounding reasonable, like a reasonable criticism of Israel, and then like morph into something else, right? So this is what's so confusing. Okay, so what's so confusing for students, they have classmates, or they themselves, are avowed anti-racist activists, but they're also mobilizing anti-Semitic tropes and rhetoric. But then when you point it out to them, when they point it out to their classmates, the classmates will, and the, the person using this language will energetically deny that they're anti-Semites. They'll say, I've looked inside my heart and my soul. I'm not an anti-Semite, right? Right. So what language are they using? That's the language of intention rather than effect. And we know, I mean, we already have this really well-developed language about this when it comes to racism or sexism, right? You may not think you're a racist or a sexist, but this is the system you live in, right? So like, even if you don't have the intention, you could be mobilizing this language without even realizing. And so why is it that the left can be so unwilling to hear that, like it, that it's enough for them to say, I'm not an anti-Semite, right? They, we have to separate, we have to think of anti-Semitism as a form of discourse that is separate from the conscious intent of the individual, right? And so there's actually a term that I'm, I'm gonna talk about later called what I call elastic anti-Semitism, which I think is a helpful, helpful for students anyway, thinking about how to recognize this language. You can separate it from intent, but all the more reason why we have to have a lot of work on college campuses, really getting people to think about all the unconscious ways in which they deploy language, even if they think, right? They don't have any bad intents, right? But they're deploying language that's really problematic and it has, they have to be able to hear that. Okay, so what's some legitimate, what is legitimate criticism of Israel? Let's just, just put it out there. What's legitimate? What would be a legitimate criticism of Israel? The uh, Western world. <coughs> okay. It's only for Orthodox. Okay, fair. Great, that there's, yes, the Western Wall is controlled by, by the Orthodox. By the Orthodox. Excellent. What would be another legitimate? Annexation. Okay, totally legitimate criticism of Israel. Yes. Another legitimate criticism that you can imagine. Well, I mean, as a Jew, I have issues with the, the loudness of the religious um, power within the secular government. Okay, perfect. Put it out there. I haven't been to Israel, but just encroachment upon perhaps sometimes the settlers perhaps encroaching upon Palestinian land and just what I've read. Okay, good. I like it how like you're so scared to even say that. <laughs> we have to like not be like it has to be out there on the table. Okay, you can even say occupation, right? Like Israel should not be occupying this, but you know, whatever, like that's legitimate. Exactly, that's right. So we have to distinguish between a legitimate criticism doesn't mean that it's right. You can argue about it, right? There can be differences of opinion, but it's still made with a legit, like it's a legitimate, every nation can be criticized, you know, but like, and you can argue about it and I can say, I don't agree with you. Professor, you know. there's a thin line though between criticizing and condemning. Exactly. This Perfect. Is, this is where yes. we have a healthy paranoia exactly. about, about conceptualizing this. That's I have, right. I, I think most Jews have a healthy paranoia about yes. this as well. About and, and that's right. Because it's 100%. 100%. And that's why I think it's really important for, for there to be constant conversation debate so we can be able to say 
that's a legitimate criticism, and I'm going to engage with you about it, and I'm going to argue with you about it, and versus that's crossed the line. Okay, so what are irrational claims, right? When does that, that set of legitimate, you know, um, set of legitimate critiques, when does it cross the line? So let's see. Um, Israel has a policy of killing children. Israeli lobbying is hugely powerful. Israel is responsible for the Iraq war. Israel is responsible for President Mubarak. Israel is responsible for all the instability throughout the Middle East. Okay, so this is where, like, this is where the irrational, and sometimes you can start out with something rational and it becomes irrational. Israel destroys the reputation of anybody in public life who criticizes it. Israel has huge influence over the media. Israel exaggerates the Holocaust and manipulates its memory for its own instrumental purposes. Israel steals the body parts of its enemies. <laughs> that one. No, no, this is out there. Israel, Israel poisons Palestinian water supplies. Israel is genocidal. Israel is apartheid. Israel is essentially racist. Israel is colonialist. Israel is the testing ground and the prototype for Western techniques of power and surveillance. Those are all irrational, right? So we have to be really clear. You can criticize, you know, whatever you want to call it, occupation. You can say, I don't believe in a two-state solution. There should be one state, and this is why. And then you have an argument about it. And those are all, there's like, but the problem is the line is moving. It's a moving target. All this, what you describe as irrational, mm -hmm. is a first cousin to saying Israel shouldn't even exist and wiping us off the face of the earth yes. would be acceptable. And that is that dangerous line that makes my hair stand on end. I know. End. And I'm sure it should make everyone's hair stand on end. Absolutely. And this is, this is why it brings up a lot of feelings, yeah. obviously. And I think Israelis themselves, I spent enough time there to know, I think that what's really hard is that... Um, this is the kind of cognitive dissonance that is at the very heart of sort of the Israeli um, uh, psychology. And that is like, there is absolutely an existential terror, right? Like existentially, will Israel still, ex you know, we are under existential threat and we are also responsible, we Israel, are responsible for another people's suffering, right? And like, I'm so, that's, you know, and that is the cognitive dissonance at the heart of Israeli psychology that is so, so difficult. What do you do with that? Okay, we're not going to debate about Israel necessarily. I just believe, and again, like I said, I'm always changing my mind myself, but, um, but that border between rational criticism and irrational claim is really contested. It's difficult to, to define, and sometimes the same claim can be rational or a blunt weapon, depending on how it's mobilized and what combination, and sometimes rational criticisms and irrational libels, because that's what it is, it's blood libel, combine in toxic angry swirls that are difficult to decipher. That's not me, that's David Hirsch, who again, who's really good at this. Okay, so now I thought, this is what I did with the students. We looked at some images just to talk about, you know, problematic, not problematic, what is it? So we've learned today that the hallmarks of anti-Semitic discourse are about attributing sinister, and control, sinister control and power and influence to the Jews. And it's really important to note that if you just substitute the term Zionist for Jew, that is not okay, right? So that's not a way of, being avoided, you know, avoiding being being um, accused of anti-Semitism. You just you don't just substitute Zionism. Um, it's painful. Uh, well, I'll I'll just let you see the. These can be painful. So this is a. This is what's painful for students, right? So they um, they endorse they they. Um, these are movements that many Jews on the left full-throatedly endorse. Justice for Puerto Rico, okay? Justice for Puerto Rico, like, yes, you know, many, many Jews on the left are like, you know, um, are, are supportive of this movement, but then you see a poster like that, right? Google 
Zionists control Wall Street. And again, this is another example of like, Jews control Wall Street. If you just substitute Zionist, that's not, that's not okay, right? Like that's still really problematic. So those doing, and just because people on the left are saying it doesn't make it okay. And again, I know that you guys are all like, uh, duh. But for students, this is like, they're like, oh my God, you know, ah, you know, someone is speaking my truth. So people doing social justice work have to be the most vigilant about anti-Semitism because what they're doing by repeating this language is they're playing into white supremacist hands, right? They're like, they're being the kind of the fools of the white supremacist movement by repeating this language. Um, here's another one. Free Palestine. Okay, fine, free Palestine. Okay, yeah, I'm okay. I, that's okay with me. Free America, free the world, stop Jewish terror, power, stop Jewish supremacy and hate. So that's obviously has crossed a line, right? You see what I'm saying? Okay. Here's another, this is actually, this is actually a flyer that got distributed. I think it was at the University of Illinois. They never figured out who did it. But this is really hard, right? Because something that students talk about all the time is white privilege. And, um, and how to address white privilege, or if you, ha if you benefit from white privilege, what do you do with that? And here's this flyer that says, I know it's very tiny and it's hard to read, but ending white privilege starts with ending Jewish privilege. And there's all this like fake data about how the 1% are all Jews, okay? So this is like really, really, um, really problematic. And then they have kind of the, pretending that it's scholarly because they, they have the URL, the website of the Pew Foundation, which of course is a totally legitimate um, uh, sort of like uh, organization that does surveys, and they, but the data is wrong, right? They're actually misusing the data. It's totally, it's fake data, but then they kind of quote the Pew Foundation as if it's legitimate. So this is a really, so uh, you know, like that's, as, a, as an, as a student who identifies with kind of like, who's really grappling with white privilege and how to be an ally and how to be anti-racist, to, to see this is really, really hard, okay? So, um, and here's another one. So this is, so this is, you know, when students see this stuff, they're like, they need someone to say this is not okay, right? Um, and they need the left to say this is not okay and be vigilant about it, and the left needs to be able to hear that, right, from others on the left. Okay, so um, I know that I'm totally running out of time, so I'm gonna just, I'm gonna kind of buzz through. So there was a massive study in England um, about anti-Semitism, and the, the architects of the study coined this term that they call elastic anti-Semitism, which I think is fascinating and actually really helpful for me um, to think about how young people experience anti-Semitism. Um, it was massive, massive study. So what they found is that real, hardcore anti-Semites, that is to say, people with a comprehensive and articulated system of anti-Semitic beliefs, comprise maybe 3% of the population of England. I, I would, I'm gonna venture to say that it's probably pretty similar here. Perhaps 3% of the population, hardcore. Um, and it's usually on the far right, some on the far left. But the population that agreed with one or more anti-Semitic ideas was more like 30% of the population. So let me break that down. So this is what leads to this idea of the elastic view, that um, anti-Semitism is an attitude. So it's less about counting anti-Semites and more about thinking about anti-Semitism as this elastic attitude. And like all attitudes, it exists in society at different levels of intensity and with different shades to it. So the conclusion was most Jews do never come 
into, reg into regular contact with strongly anti-Semitic individuals, right? Like someone, like that 3% of the population has like a really articulated belief system about Jews. But what Jews are exposed to far more frequently are people who are not, they would never say that they, I'm not anti-Semitic, right? But yet who hold and from time to time may vocalize views that make Jews feel uncomfortable or offended. And um, anti-Semitic ideas are not as marginal in Great Britain as some measures of anti-Semitism might suggest, and they can be held with or without open dislike of Jews, okay? And I'm gonna kind of give you examples of what those attitudes were. The motivations of people expressing such views may well be benign. They don't even realize that in that, um, uh, they may not even realize that a particular comment or remark might be experienced by Jews as offensive, upsetting, or just uncomfortable, but they can impact significantly on the perception, sense of comfort and safety, and ultimately the quality of life of Jews in Great Britain. So the probability of encountering someone uh, a potentially offensive or at the very least uncomfortable, right, idea um, for a Jewish person in Britain anyway is not one in 20 as it is with like strongly, you're, you know, 3% of the population is strongly anti-Semitic, you're probably not gonna encounter very many of those people. But if 30% of the population holds one or more anti-Semitic views, then your chance of encountering someone like that is one in three, yeah. right? Okay. So there's a kind of diffusion of anti-Semitic ideas. So it's not about the number of anti-Semites, it's about the diffusion of these ideas. So what are some of these ideas that people can hold one or more, not even realizing how problematic they are? So these are, so what the study did is they gave examples of statements and people were asked to agree or disagree with the statements. So what are some of the statements? Jews think they are better than other people. The interests of Jews are different from the interests of the rest of the country. Jews get rich at the expense of others. Jews exploit Holocaust victimhood for their own purposes. Jews have too much power in this country. Okay, that's another one. One in three people agreed with one or more of these statements, okay? And these statements, as we know, as we have learned, reach into these really old anti-Semitic stereotypes, dual loyalty, right, conspiracy, greed, blah, 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 blah. So, um, so, so this is what I'm saying, like it's not just about Israel, right? It's not just about anti-Zionism, it's like it's bigger than that. And um, uh, so, um, so I use this idea to frame what I said to students. I'm kind of skipping some stuff, but, um, but the, what I call microaggressions, right, on college campuses. So for instance, and these are stories that I've heard from students. Um, assumptions and messages that are uncomfortable, confusing, activate students' own sense of shame and guilt, their own internalized anti-Semitism. So students, for sure students, are kind of hassled for their presumed or real views on Israel, right? A student wearing a Star of David or their name in Hebrew, you know, will then get kind of like, you know, someone will kind of like assault them and like, you know, want to talk to them about Israel, like challenge what they believe or their view. That happens, for sure. But then there are other messages, like um, the message that in a class discussion about oppression and trauma, that if you want to talk about your grandparents' experiences in the Holocaust, that that would not be welcome, right? Like this feeling that you get that like you're not supposed to talk about that. Or having someone say to you, well, you don't have to worry about financial aid because you're Jewish, right? Um, or having Jewishness so reflexively associated with whiteness that if you're a Jewish person of color or you are, you are a Jewish Latinx person, you're literally like illegible. Like no one, knows, it's like you have to choose one or the other, right? Like there's no room in the kind of American psyche that you can have complicated identities like that. So, race, class, religion, Israel, it's all kind of entangled in anti-Semitism. 
Um, and I think just naming that for students and helping them recognize like, yes, like this is actually sort of like, you know, that uncomfortable feeling that you're having, like there's a language, like we can develop a language for that and it's okay to talk about it. Okay, so that's anti-Semitism on campus. And I know that like the question now is like, what do you do, right? So what do you do about it? Um, and I think what you do depends on your goals and we can talk more about it. But I actually uh, looked at the ACL, I was really curious about what the ACLU had to say about free speech on campus. Um, and so I thought we would just end with what the ACLU says. Um, Okay, and the ACLU believes very, I mean, we all know what the ACLU, like, you know, they believe in everyone's right to say whatever they believe, even if it's like really, really offensive. So the ACLU's position, they actually, there's a, um, they have like a whole position on what campuses should be doing, and their answer is not to shut down speech, but to have all speech, right? And then to do more work educating the community, right? Um, which I think is, is I'm, I'm thinking that that's, shutting down speech never works. So, because as the ACLU says, then you're just gonna make martyrs for free speech, right? And that's not productive. So you need to, you need to fight ideas with other ideas. The flip side of that coin is that being an apologist That's right. is dangerous as well. Right. I think. Administrators have to, as I said to Michelle yesterday, administrators have to not be cowards. And I would say that colleges, um, and I can tell you because I was an administrator, so I, I know this, college administrators are not scared of faculty, they are not even scared of donors, but they are terrified of students. Um, so when students agitate, administrators listen. That's, that's my piece of advice. <laughs> okay, um, restrictions on speech have proven at best ineffective, at worst counterproductive in the fight against bigotry. These restrictions are often interpreted and enforced to oppose social change because they place the power to decide whether speech is offensive and should be restrained with authority figures, the government or college administration, rather than with those seeking to question or dismantle existing power structures. Um, when schools shut down speakers who espouse bigoted views, they deprive their students of the opportunity to, to, sorry, to confront those views themselves. And such incidents do not shut down a single bad idea and they don't protect students from the harsh realities of an unjust world. Um, silencing a bigot accomplishes nothing except turning them into a martyr for the principle of free expression, um, which I, I think on colleges that's exactly right. Um, trying to shut down a talk, even if it's really offensive, it just always backfires. Um, and here's their solution. Universities are ob obligated to create an environment that fosters tolerance, mutual respect. This is harder, easier said than done among members of the campus community, an environment where, where all students can exercise their right to participate meaningfully in campus life without being subject to discrimination. Campus administrators should speak out loudly and clearly against expressions of racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Speech, react promptly and firmly to counter acts of discriminatory harassment, create forums and workshops to raise awareness, intensify their efforts to ensure broad diversity, um, and vigil vigilantly defend the equal rights of all speakers and all ideas to be heard. Um, a couple of other additional ideas that I have um, that students could do. One is, and again, it depends on your goals, right? But, um, but if it's to foster alliances with other activist groups on campus, then students have to call on activists with kind of what I call intersectional credibility who can call out anti-Semitism. That is to say, do not invite the ADL to campus. It just won't work. The left won't hear it, right? Don't invite APAC to campus. It won't work, the left won't hear it, right? So if you want the left to hear and, and internalize, then you have to invite people like Aurora Levins-Morales 
or um, an activist named Loretta Ross, who's a black activist who talks a lot about anti-Semitism, white supremacy, and connects them, and like urges black activists to fight anti-Semitism. So you need to kind of invite groups that the left can really hear, if that's your goal, is to foster alliances. Um, there's a group called Jews for Economic and Social Justice who have put out a publication on anti-Semitism on the left. So this is if you really want to make change on the left, you have to kind of call upon resources that the left can hear. If you want to create an environment on campus where it's just like it's a free marketplace of ideas and you want to really provoke and like force students to confront things that they don't agree with, then invite the ADL and APAC <laughs> and you know what I mean? And like create a free marketplace of ideas. But it depends on what your goals are. Um, if your goal, I think also students, Jewish students need to make alliances with faculty, especially Jewish studies faculty. Every campus has a Jewish studies program, um, thanks to donors. <laughs> thanks to Jewish donors who think it's important. Um, make alliances with those faculty. They are the experts, and no one has more credibility with students than faculty. That's why inviting outside organizations, universities do not, colleges and universities do not change in response to outside pressure. It just doesn't work. But they do respond, first of all, like I said, they're terrified of students. Um, and no one has more credibility with students than faculty. And so make alliances with faculty, especially Jewish studies faculty. Um, work with faculty to propose panels, workshops, discussions, lectures um, in all, you know, to, that address anti-Semitism in all of its forms to help educate the campus. Take courses in Jewish studies. Get educated, right? Um, get well-educated in Jewish history, thought, culture, including Zionis Zionism in Israel. Um, so I think, you know, Jewish students have to take advantage. Often they'll go to the rabbi on campus, and like with all respect to my colleagues who are the rabbis on campuses, um, they can be helpful, but it's the faculty, the Jewish studies faculty, that are gonna that are gonna really help you change change the culture. And so you have students have to make alliances with those faculty and reach out to them. So that's kind of my last bit of advice. Um, and I so know that I went over time, and I said to hold all your questions. But if you feel like sticking around, ask me questions. No, no, thank you. Actually, our, yeah, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. And, um, <laughs> our, our Q and A is actually a crucial part of our experience. So, okay, sorry, sorry. Folks are yeah. should never be embarrassed to walk out in front of ninety people, but why don't we allocate another ten or fifteen minutes? Yeah, I'd be delighted. I'm sorry. Usually ninety minutes at night and an hour in the day, but this is important to have some back and forth. So let's take. And, and you want to field them yourself? Okay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, please. In defense of the 2016 State Department definition of anti-Semitism. I just want you to know, because it's, I think it's called a non-legal binding. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but exactly. It's, it's a guideline. Right. The guidelines are there to help people define it. Yes. But also, we have a rock star anti-Semitism envoy called Elon Carr, which I don't know if you guys know about. But he was put in office by President Trump. And you can YouTube him and hear what he's doing to combat anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And I think he has a measure of effect. And the last time I heard him speak, he's combating anti-Semitism in the Middle East mm -hmm. in terms of the yeah. textbooks they use to educate children in some countries yeah. are very anti-Semitic. Yeah. And I'm not disputing any of that. I think what's challenging about the State Department definition is that it's, um, is there a difference between applying it abroad and then applying it internally in the United States, right? So like, what, what does that mean? But it's a guideline, 100%. Yeah, it's a guideline, yeah. Um, hold on, I'm gonna say, I just because, I've, let's hear from new folks, new voices, and then yes, jump in. 
Please, yeah. There are, um, I don't know how many, but I know that there are professors at some universities who are totally anti-Israel and totally mm -hmm. anti-Semitic mm -hmm. and, are, and are, are rewarding their students for participating in, in um, films and lectures that, that continue to be the catalyst for promoting anti-Semitism. Yeah. I, I experienced one of those. And I don't understand why they are not released from the universities. Isn't there any kind right. of protocol for releasing people who are anti-anything and, and right. ostracizing that? So this is a very complicated issue, right? Because of course, um, there's a very, very strong tradition on college campuses of freedom of freedom of academic inquiry, freedom of academic expression. Um, and Well, so, okay. So, and this is what tenure, by the way, is supposed to do, right? Like tenure is supposed to create an environment where professors should not be afraid to, um, to express their, to pursue their scholarship, to express their opinions um, without fear of repercussion. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't, they should not be, they don't, they have an obligation to be responsible scholars and responsible teachers, right? So um, when you have opinions about something that is like not your area of expertise, you know, then that's, that's really problematic. So what do you do? Every university, every college has a process for, for, for filing a complaint or a grievance against a faculty member, right? And I think that students have to really, um, they, have to, they have to learn what the processes are what their rights are as students, and they have, to, they have to work the processes of the university. That is to say, if they're in a classroom and they feel discriminated against by the professor, then they can file, there's a process for filing a grievance, there is a procedure, and there's always an investigation. And that's an opportunity for students, and this is also why administrators have a role to play too, like to have a conversation with faculty um, about what's happening in the classroom. And so, um, is there a process for letting faculty go? It depends, right? Like if they have tenure, it's pretty difficult. If they don't, but on the other hand, use the processes that exist, right? And, um, but it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy. I totally get it. It's How not easy. How do students even begin to know what, how to approach right. about a process? Right, exactly. And so that's why uh, all, there right. There should be somebody. That's right. We should be organizing ourselves, you know, to in every university that there's, there's, that there's a, a pathway for that student. That's right. So all the more reason. I don't know. That's right. So that all the more reason, again, back to the ACLU, the university has, has an obligation to create an environment on campus where there is lots of debate and there's conversation and education around anti-Semitism so students can then say, name what they're experiencing in class and have a language for saying, this professor said these things and there's a process, right? But like, I, I, um, I again, it has, to, it has to happen on the people coming from the outside and saying, fire this professor, no. never works. It just yeah. never works. But, but does every right. university have a process? Always. Okay. Always, so, of course. So, Absolutely. So it should be easy. Yes, there are, there, are, there are community norms around discrimination, around harassment, around creating, like every student has the right to, um, to live and learn in an environment that promotes their learning. So that's what I would say, and I'm an administrator, right? So like, this is there's a process. Let's follow the process and see what the process can open up for students. I'm sorry, there was like a lot of hands that kind of shot up, but like, 
Okay, go ahead. So, 19 to 21 year olds are under a tremendous amount of peer pressure of to course. fit in, whether they're on campus Absolutely. or off campus. So, have there been any studies done as to how much of this anti Semitism is actually heartfelt yes. versus trying just to fit in with my, my buddy or my roommate? Yes, yes, yes. So, yes, I think a lot of, um, first of all, from a developmental point of view, there are a lot of develop developmental psychologists who actually work on this like age group, or like 18 to 22 year olds, 18 to 23 year olds, and like psychologically speaking, like from a developmental place, they, um, first of all, the, one of the reasons that students have such a hard time arguing is because they experience every disagreement as a personal assault, right? Mm -hmm. So you're a Jewish student, you've grown up in a very supportive community, your identity has never been challenged, right? You go to college for the first time and you hear for the first time ever, Israel is an illegitimate state. And what do you hear? You hear, right? Like, oh, you know, I'm being attacked as a human being. I am being told that I'm, right? Like, you experience that as a total personal assault. I think, you know, what do we do for our kids before we send them off to college? I think that we have to, first of all, they should be better educated about Israel, right? And about Jewishness and about, and, and be able to kind of like use language to sort of um, address that and be able to talk about it. But, but I think we have to also understand that it's really hard for, for young people between 18 and 22 to actually disagree about things because everything is a experience as a personal assault. Um, a lot, I think you're absolutely right. A student wants to fit in with a particular group or student club or whatever, they're all using the same language, so they use it, they parrot the language, they really know what they're saying or what the context is, maybe not, um, in which case there has to be a lot of education on campus. And by the way, like, anti-Semitism is not the only problem we're having on college campuses, right? I mean, there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of sexual violence, there's a lot of gender violence, there's a lot of, you know, I'm more concerned, frankly, about, like, assault, you know, uh, you know, so, um, and uh, you know, non-consensual non-consensual assaults on campus, or I feel like that's a bigger problem. So students have a lot of work they need to do, right, in terms of being able to really live together. Um, so it's you know, but yeah, I think that you're right, just from a psychological perspective, that they're going through a developmental period that makes some of this really challenging. There's, there's, Sorry, here, go ahead, and then yeah, jump. There in. seems to be a blurring between opinionated speech and non-factual speech. Yes. And so I'm wondering, where are the universities and other organizations? Because this ACLU statement doesn't even touch yeah. non-factual speech. Uh, where are we in terms of developing policy and procedures on campus to be able to accept opinions, yet? shut down non-facts. Right. I mean, again, I think the ACLU would say, you, you know, um, you, you have to confront offensive ideas with, with other, you know, you have to sort of say, like, that's not true, that is wrong, here are the facts, have more workshops, have more panels, have more education on campus. I know, you don't look satisfied. Well, it doesn't but say it's, it up there. No. It's got nothing to do with facts up there. It, it always assumes that these things yeah. are just Or ideas. Opinion. Sure. Ideas. Right. That's way different right. than facts. I know. And we can see how facts can be also not just yeah. manipulated. So right? I'm saying ACLU is not addressing it. Are the universities addressing it, maybe? Or could you do it in your new yeah. position? Yeah. Right, and right. Begin, <laughs> and, and begin to set some leadership yeah. about the difference between well, this is what they mean, you know, facts and right. one happen and shutting down right. the other. So when they say, first of all, I think, like I said, administrators have to not be cowards. And I think, first of all, most of the most of the really problematic speakers to, on campuses happen because student groups invite them, 
right? So they don't necessarily have the imprimatur of the college administration. It's not the president who's inviting, um, I don't know, Richard Spencer, right? It's a student group. And usually they're doing it, um, sometimes they're doing it to be provocative. Sometimes they're doing it because these are ideas that the student group espouses. Um, but I think, and again, student groups should be free to spend their money the way they want and invite who they want. When universities shut down speakers and say you can't invite that person, it backfires terribly. So better to let the, better to let the talk happen. Um, and then if the president of the university is brave, write something, right? Write a public piece saying this speaker came and said these things and they are wrong. And this is what I think, and da, 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 and, and that is the brave thing to do, right? That's leadership. How often does that Occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally. Look, we're not going to solve the problem of anti-Semitism. Certainly not in college campuses, right? Like, it's, the country is not in a good place right now. But, um, but we've got 10 minutes. Let's go. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know. Got some good ideas here. <laughs> so the quick question, getting back to uh, the policy where a student can go to an administrator and charge mm -hmm. a professor with anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. is there a mechanism to protect that student against retaliation yeah. or that professor going to other professors saying, uh, Steve Rosenbaum is right. a hothead Jew. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that's retaliation, and every school has a policy about no retaliation is not, um, is not tolerated. So imagine the same, imagine how this would play out, not around anti-Semitism, but say, um, uh, um, uh, yeah, no, well, or, or um, I'm just trying to think how it would play out with like another identity. Uh, with sexism, thank you very much, thank you. Um, so yeah, so there's a very, so all schools have very clear guidelines that once, what, and it's not just student faculty, it's like student to student too. If a student charges another student with a violation of community norms, let's put it that way, that's like a big blank, a violation of community norms, whether that's sexism, racism, assault, um, you know, a, a whole variety of ways in which like, you know, people don't behave well with, with each other on a college campus. So, you, you charge someone else with a violation of community norms, immediately it, it sort of, it, um, uh, it sets into motion, right, investigation, it sets into motion a process. And very clearly, like, one of the community norms is retaliation is not tolerated. So if there's a retaliation, then the student has more, you know, then it's a retaliation. So it's not okay. Yeah. So uh, we talked a lot about anti-Semitism that there's a reason people act towards Jews. And there's also philo-Semitism, those who have a unique love for Jews. Yeah. And what they have in common is that they both think Jews are different than the norm. Jews are acceptable yeah. in some way. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder, is your sense that their one's journey from philo-Semitism to anti-Semitism is a long journey because <laughs> love to hate is a pretty long journey? Or it's actually a very, they're very interconnected and it's a close journey because they already hold that Jews are something different than the norm. Right, and also a lot of that philo-Semitism is often like, some of it anyway, is, um, uh, and I've experienced this with students, often students from abroad, um, international students who'll say things like, I'm taking this Jewish literature class because um, uh, Jews are really, really intelligent and really successful, and I want to sort of learn the secret you know, like why is it that Jews are so successful and intelligent, right? And I feel like it's a very short, it doesn't take a whole lot yeah. to go from there to like Jews control the media, you know, Jews control. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, okay, just to go further that, there are also 
some sects of Orthodox Jewry who, who think they are the light of the world. And, you know, I, mean, I don't know, I don't know how, how extensive that is, but I've been, I've been exposed to that. So, you know, it's not as far, like you say, it's not a far jump to go right. the other way. Yeah, it's problematic in either case because, you know, I, there's a phrase uh, that, that we also use called romantic racialism. It's sort of like the equivalent of like attributing, attributing qualities to a whole people that they all share, right, you know, is problematic no matter what, whether it's positive or negative, right? Like because, you know, you can't cat categorize a whole group of people, you know, so all Jews are smart. It's like no, <laughs> not really. Yeah. So yeah. So I think Someone I think it's a problem. Told me. Right. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.